You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, full earnings coverage ahead. Tesla shares, they slump after warning about a notably slower growth rate. Details ahead. Plus, we stick with earnings and sit down with the CFO of ServiceNow as the company hits a record high on strong results. And Microsoft cutting nearly 2,000 jobs in its gaming division, including Activision. We're bringing the latest as the tech giant slashes 8% of its video game workforce with key personnel leaving. Well, a pretty ferocious news cycle. Intel is out with earnings after the bell, but a deal announced this morning with UMC, the Taiwanese chip maker. Basically, uh, UMC gets access to 12 nanometer technology on the manufacturing side. Intel, in the context of its Arizona facilities, gets utilization of some prior gen hardware. This is a great win for onshoring manufacturing capacity in the US. You'd think the Commerce Department is pretty happy about it. We will look into that deal uh, for Intel's foundry business later in the program. IBM up 12%, touching a 10-year high after a strong outlook in the sales context. They're warning about some workforce reduction, but the market likes the outlook on the enterprise side from IBM. And then there's Microsoft. Up nine-tenths of 1%, cutting 1,900 jobs at both Activision and Xbox units. This happens, though, in M&A, doesn't it, mm. sometimes? We will go to Jason Schreier, our video games correspondent, later in the program to really understand what's happening with Microsoft Activision. There is one single name the world's paying attention to today, and that is Tesla. Tesla is down significantly, more than 10%. On an intraday basis, biggest drop since October. If it closes down, now 11.5%, that will be the biggest drop in more than a year. It's trading at its lowest level since May. Why? Well, the market is zeroed in on the guidance Tesla gave that production or output growth in 2024 will be significantly lower than it was in 2023. And at the same time, they dropped this pretty long-standing guidance of 50% compound annual average growth, which goes all the way back to the end of 2020. Now, within that, there's a lot of optimism about AI, 
about Optimus the robot, FSD, and Elon Musk's role within the company. A lot to digest. Let's break it down with Tasha Keeney, Director of Investment Analysis and Institutional Strategies at ARK Invest. And look, Tasha, I know you're super bullish on this name. Let's focus on what the market's looking at in the first instance, which is a next generation EV platform is coming. We're coming out the back of the, the Model 3 and Y era, so output will be less in 2024 from a growth perspective. Does that worry you? Yeah, well, you said it, you know, we're really focused on the long term here at ARK Invest, which really you should be for a disruptive name like Tesla. So, you know, they, they did mention, yes, production um, growth for this coming year will be slower. Uh, you know, they, they are focused on this next generation vehicle platform and they're, they're attributing, you know, the, the part of the uh, cautiousness on production to that. And overall, that's a great thing. Right. Um, you know, as well as anyone, that I'm excited about the robotaxi opportunity. So the fact that they're building a custom uh, robotaxi vehicle is really exciting and shows their confidence and their autonomous capability. Um, you, you know, we have uh, FSD 12, their you know latest version of the autonomous technology software in the car, rolling out to customers that, that again shows confidence in their capability. We also heard that um, Optimus might begin shipping next year. So I think, you know, Tesla is this behemoth in the AI space. It's going to be one of the greatest AI opportunities of our time. And I, I think to ignore that is, is frankly wrong when thinking about the stock. So I'm excited about it. Well, the next gen vehicle platform joins the, the traditional car making side of the story with the AI story, right? What did we learn? Musk said it will be low cost, that they're making progress on start of production, which will start in Texas in the first instance. But he said, take 2025 with a grain of salt. Did you learn enough during the call about the next gen platform to fully understand where we go from here on this future robo taxi concept? Yes, well, I'd say, you know, overall, I, I think Elon is a lot more cautious than he has been in the past with his forecasts. I mean, he said it on the call that he has been really optimistic with timelines. Um, and honestly, who can blame him? Because I think humans in general are pretty bad at predicting AI progress. Um, but yes, we heard that they can start production next year on the next generation vehicle platform. You know, I think there's a lot of cause for optimism in what they said around margins. So we saw automotive gross margins, X credits tick up in the quarter. Um, you know, we did hear that, one, they're, they're cutting costs on a per car basis um, in, in a way that's really unprecedented in the auto industry. Um, and they also said that even though, you know, on their current vehicle platform, they're sort of reaching the limits of that cost reduction, that doesn't mean that they're done. Right. Um, so we heard on the design side, um, you know, it's commodity prices that flows through to the underlying cost of the vehicle that takes some time. Uh, so there's still optimism there. And I think that's amazing. Um, I mean, when you look at EVs as a whole, traditional automakers are cutting back on their electric mm. vehicle platforms. I mean, that's a bad idea because EVs are already cost competitive with gas powered cars. And guess what? It's only going to get cheaper. So this is the future. And, and Tesla is the leader there. Your models. I mean, the last time it was updated, you had an expected value per share of $2,000 for Tesla by 2027, predicated on the idea of this robo-taxi venture. On the bull and the bear case, where do you stand right now when he's saying take 2025 with a grain of salt? How much do you think we will see robo-taxis become in use, in place, revenue generating by 2027? 
Yeah, so you know we're currently updating our model. Um, look out for, let's say, over the next few months, an updated price target from us for 2028. Um, and actually, our Big Ideas Deck, our annual research presentation on uh, you know the technologies that we cover as a whole, is coming out soon. So that'll give you a little preview. Um, but I'd say overall, you know. Um, we on autonomy, right? You think about it in the five-year term. So, could they be late a few quarters? Absolutely. Um, and again, uh, humans are bad at predicting AI, right? I could have told you comfortably the night before ChatGPT came out and was released to the world, the chatbots weren't that good. But guess what? It changed overnight. Um, and we already see from players like Waymo that robo-taxis are possible. We actually already see from Tesla that robo-taxis are possible because you can watch the consumer videos online that show people that have virtually no interventions yeah. on full point-to-point -point rides. So it's just a matter of, of when. And do I think that'll happen in the next five years? Yeah. And I think we heard, again, some of the confidence in FSD-12 which is an important milestone for them in, in making the road to full autonomy on the call. Tasha, your thesis and ARC's thesis on the bet of Tesla is that it is inextricably linked with AI, with robotics. Yet we hear Elon Musk threatening to take those two key things, that innovation elsewhere, if he doesn't get the 25% voting control that he wants in the company. Are you worried by that threat? I, I think that's really overblown, the fear about that. I mean, one, um, we are uh, very happy to have Elon Musk be incentivized uh, to change the world. I mean, this man is uh, clearly capable of amazing things when it comes to robotics and AI. Uh, so we want his incentives to be aligned with the, the future of Tesla. Um, also, you know, Tesla's been investing in this for, you know, the past decade or so. Uh, they are years ahead of the competition when it comes to AI. To give you an example, um, currently Tesla vehicles are able to access over 2 million miles per day um, driven in full self-driving from customers. So that's very important training data that you need to make a fully autonomous car. Um, you know, Waymo, uh, in, in the course of the lifetime of the project, has single-digit millions worth of driving data. Uh, so this is, you know, Tesla is so much further ahead when it comes to scale on AI already. Um, and again, I, I'm really excited for this coming year. Um, optimists, we think, could be, uh, you know, general purpose robots could be roughly a $10 trillion uh, market alone in manufacturing, um, even more when you look to, say, like household tasks, which could be further down the line. Um, so there's so many exciting things things ahead for Tesla. So I think the focus on, you know, demand production in the short term is really just that. It's short term focus when you want to be long term focused with this name. Tasha Keeney, still staying bullish. We thank you, Director of Investment Analysis and Institutional Strategies at ARK Invest. Meanwhile, well, we were just talking about it, how Musk is pretty much persisting with his pursuit of a bigger controlling stake in Tesla, wanting the board to approve an increase of 25% holding from the 13% he currently has. And of course, he is threatening that without it, he'll build his AI and robotics products elsewhere. During the earnings call on Wednesday, he said that with so little influence at the company at this stage, I could be voted out by some random shareholder advisory firm. Let's think about whether he could be voted out, whether he should be voted out, and indeed what his holding should be with Kristen Hull, founder and CEO of Near Impact Capital. It's a social impact fund that's owned about $282,000 of Tesla stock as of mid-year and has waged pressure campaigns against the company for years, including via shareholder resolutions. So Kristen, we know the area with which you come. In fact, the last time you joined the show, it was surrounding the anti-Semitic controversy surrounding Elon Musk, and you said he's got to go. What do you think of him wanting 25% control of the company? Caroline, thanks for having me today. This is such a interesting and, of course, complicated CEO. So 
Um, when we were talking about anti-Semitism, there just isn't any room in corporate America or anywhere for those types of comments. And so that's where that was coming from. Of course, um, this CEO is very unique, um, both on the innovation, um, the ability to step outside the box and completely go against the status quo. And in lots of ways, that's really important. That's really, um, you know, he's not tied to how we've done things in the past and he wants to do things differently. Where we're cautious are some of these inflammatory statements. So um, he wants 25% ownership and yet, um, you know, he had almost that. He's had almost that in the past. I think he's down to about 13% now, um, having used some of that money to purchase X. Um, and so what do we mean about incentives? I'd say we're also very much in agreement that we want the CEO to have incentives for the long term of the company. And yet money isn't an incentive to the world's richest man. So having those voting rights is going to be really interesting. Um, he did make some comments um, in the earnings call yesterday about um, ISS and Glass-Lewis. Um, they do make recommendations um, about and many of the institutional investors follow those recommendations as far as voting rights. And so um, we like uh, to have uh, some of these recommendations coming out so that we can rein in a CEO who may need that from time to time. Yeah, Kristen, what, what Musk said about ISS was that his nickname for them was ISIS, which clearly is an inflammatory comment. I know that our audience just want to understand the basics here from impact investors like Nia on, on their, their rationale, right? If there are many that just say Elon Musk says things that upset people. He says things that are controversial. But at the same time, over a 10-year period, he has grown Tesla to be the clear market incumbent in EVs. He's changed the game uh, for space technology and mankind's ability to get to low Earth orbit. Excuse my voice. So how important to you is it that, that you kind of get some result here without offsetting you know, what is quite clearly a capable leader? Ed, thanks so much for that question. So, he, capable leader, that is, I would say that's up for grabs. He's certainly leading quite a few, and of course, he's leading in the AI, and we actually were really interested in that battery play, and he's shown that that's a really um, important part of what they want to roll out, both in 2024, 2025, and beyond. Um, where we have questions and concerns are um, some of his statements. And so comparing ISS, which is Institutional Shareholder Services, to ISIS, that's inflammatory, and it doesn't even make any sense. Um, this is a... a group that puts out proxy recommendations um, based on what they believe um, is good for the long term of the company. Um, they have nothing to do with um, ISIS. So that that's problematic. Um, he's also um, made some comments recently about um, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, that really do cause concerns, particularly because we need Tesla to be um, um, to have a really strong brand, um, both um, for the consumer side, because people need to be feel really strong and great about purchasing and driving that car, um, using that battery, also the solar for roofing. Um, and um, <clears throat> uh, what we're concerned about is his ability to attract and retain top talent um, if people don't see a place for them within this innovation. Okay, Kristen Hall, Near Impact Capital. We're grateful for your time on the program. Thank you. Uh, Caroline, let's just stick a little bit longer with Tesla. We talked about the bingo card yesterday in advance of earnings, and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go full send. I'm going to play the game. <laughs> this was the end result. Look how close I came. It's fun. 
it's also, though, important, some of the things that perhaps he didn't actually mention. DEI, one of them, you didn't get to cross off. He did insult an analyst. Did you feel he'd insulted an analyst? Oh, no, he cut off an executive. That was it. But I think overall, this was an Elon that you know, lived up to a lot of the anticipation. Dana Hull, we give great kudos for that, for coming up with this game. But I know it's something that themes on Reddit. What was the one that took you most by surprise that he actually did say? By surprise, I guess the Fed. And I was stretching there because he basically said about interest rates. But yeah, a fun game. That was my real card. Check it out. It was a great game that you played along in live time. You've always got to follow Ed throughout Twitter, X, as it currently is when he has his earnings. Meanwhile, coming up, we'll continue our earnings coverage with ServiceNow. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. ServiceNow, let's talk about its own earnings. The results came after the bell yesterday and provided a revenue outlook for the current quarter, topping Wall Street estimates. In fact, they beat across the board. It's spurring optimism that the enterprise software provider will continue expanding, even as many peers have reported some slowing growth. Let's bring in ServiceNow CFO, Gina Mastantuno, for more. And look, you do manage to outperform the rest of the sector, Gina. And what's notable is you say you've got one of the few offerings when it comes to AI, with real product, real use cases, and real customers. Now, I'm interested as to is there any cannibalization there? When companies are thinking in this economic environment to allocate towards technology, does AI come at the expense of anything else or is it an addition? So great question, Caroline. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, absolutely. ServiceNow closed the year with another exceptional quarter. Revenues of 25.5% in constant currency. CRPO, which is our current backlog, basically 23%. Operating margin of 29% all beating the high end of our guidance by about 200 basis points, renewal rates of 99%. 
and large new logo growth continuing to accelerate, which is pretty remarkable. We achieved, which we're super proud of, we achieved our long-term goal of crossing 10 billion in CACV, which only eight software companies have ever achieved in the past. And you're absolutely right. We have incredible Gen AI products in market, which launched just at the end of September. So our first full quarter of Gen AI, and we basically saw the largest contribution for our first full quarter of any of our product releases in our history. So Gen AI is resonating with our customers. It's early days, but we're absolutely not seeing any cannibalization at this point. Uh Gina, we were just playing bingo with Tesla's earnings call. If we had played bingo with your earnings call, we would have had CRPO, or in other words, current remaining performance obligations. And you like really hit that number. But let's be honest, the street's looking at it and saying, why then is the forward-looking stuff so lukewarm? Why are you not more bullish about growth uh, across the board for the rest of the year? Well, in, in, in fact, we actually raised our full year revenue guidance for the for 2024 to 10.575 billion from 10.4. So we actually raised our guidance for the full year given our results. So we are bullish on our momentum. We're excited about what 2024 is going to show. But let's face it, the macro is still uncertain. So from a guide perspective, we want to be prudent in how we're thinking about things. We're seeing great demand across the board. I talked to investors yesterday. Uh, our pipeline looks strong. Uh, demand is there. Gen AI is on the forefront of what every CEO and CFO are talking about and looking to invest in. So our platform right now is in a very strong position, and our company is in a strong position to continue to build on the momentum that you saw in 2023. It's such a game of, dare I say, frenemies, Gina, though, because you, of course, have a relationship very much intertwined with Microsoft and OpenAI when doing your offerings for Gen AI. You're, of course, helping Amazon with its own offerings over there, AWS, in terms of its marketplace. I'm, I'm really intrigued as to how you continue to offer something separate and different in comparison to companies that almost might want to eat your lunch. <laughs> well, I think it's the strength of our platform. It's our relationship with our customers. Um, it's our people. It's the fast time to value that our platform delivers for our customers. We are such a customer-centric company, really understanding the needs of our customers, understanding the outcomes that they're trying to get, and how our platform can help them deliver. Uh, we're super excited about some of the partnerships that we announced. One of them you talked about with AWS. ServiceNow is now going to be available as a SaaS offering on the AWS marketplace. This opens up a whole new market for us, whole new TAM, and it's a partnership that we're really excited about. We also announced a strategic partnership with Visa, which is a five-year strategic alliance to use our Gen AI products to help transform payment services. And it's end-to-end -end dispute resolution for all of their customers. And so excited to continue to partner with these great companies. Um, no one has to lose for us to win, and we will continue to outperform. ServiceNow CFO Gina Mastantuno, great to have you on the show. Time now for Talking Tech First Up. For the first time ever, the iPhone has ranked as the top-selling smartphone series in China. Now, according to IDC, Apple's device had the most shipments in the fourth quarter and overall in 2023. Now, this comes amid all those concerns from investors about plummeting sales in the region. 
Meanwhile, sales of ASML's chip-making machinery, it boomed in China last year. Now, this comes despite a secret agreement between the U.S. and the Netherlands to actually curb deliveries to Beijing. Sources say ASML maintains that it didn't violate the deal. A spokesperson for the U.S. National Security Council declined to comment. Plus, Russia has apparently imported more than $1 billion worth of advanced chips made in the U.S. and European companies. Classified data obtained by Bloomberg, which shows that half of the imported semiconductors were manufactured by firms like Intel, AMD, ST Microelectronics, and others. Ed. A lot going on in the chip space. Sticking with ST Micro, watching shares with its sales outlook for the current quarter, missing estimates, a sign that weak demand for industrial chips continues. Revenue in the first quarter falling 15% year on year to $3.6 billion, compared to $4.1 billion estimated by analysts. Stock down two tenths of a percent. The other big story that is kind of driving markets is what's happening in video games. Microsoft shares are higher by a percentage point now. You see throughout Thursday's session, add to those gains, the story, 1,900 or so jobs being cut from across Activision, which Microsoft acquired, and Xbox personnel as well. And I mean, how often does this happen in the context of a big piece of M&A efficiencies? But what's the real story here? Let's go to Bloomberg's Jason Schreier, our correspondent on all things video games. What do we know about the details, Jason? Yeah, we are facing a real chaos all across the company. I'm getting texts still right now. I'm getting texts from people saying they don't know if they're being laid off. Some people are finding out because their Slack is deactivated. I'm told by a Blizzard spokesperson that everybody should find out by the end of the day if they'll have jobs or not, all 1,900 people. But, uh, yeah, it's just chaos over there right now. What took me by surprise, and I'm interested if it took you as well, is some of the senior executives that are on the out, in particular the president, Mike Barra, who I think previously said he wasn't for going and he was going to have to be dragged out, and as well as the chief design officer, who is actually a co-founder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Alan Adham. He is uh, he's called a co-founder, technically is, but he, he's really the founder of Blizzard. He's the, the kind of guy and was for a very long time. Yeah, we're talking about a massive change over there. I think um, a lot of people kind of expected that Mike Ybarra might be on the way out um, for various reasons. Um, and I think that uh, he, he kind of, let's say he ruffled some feathers within Blizzard over the course of a couple of disastrous meetings last year and a couple of decisions that people weren't thrilled about. Um, but still it's a big surprise. Blizzard also canceled one of their big games, a game that was codenamed Odyssey. It was kind of a survival game. Comes as crazy timing this week, given that Pal World, the kind of Pokemon with guns survival game that is selling bazillions of copies, just came out. But yeah, it's just, it's really bloodier. I mean, I had been hearing rumors that uh, layoffs might be coming to Blizzard, but even this is uh, way bigger and bloodier than I expected. So I've been mentioning this. In any big piece of M&A where a very big company joins another big company or is, is merged into it, there are often layoffs because there's overlapping roles and they look for efficiencies, etc. Um, but that kind of masks, Jason, the broader idea of what Microsoft was getting in its purchase of Activision Blizzard. Do we have any sense of how that integration is going and kind of what the focus of the projects are on the content and, and title side? 
Yeah, that's what we still don't don't know. We're trying to find out. I mean, it's been about three months since the since Microsoft officially took over Activision Blizzard. Um, when it happened, a lot of people were optimistic. Bobby Kotick, the departing chief of Activision Blizzard, was not the most popular guy among the company. So people were were excited to see what might happen. Microsoft has still not communicated publicly what their vision is for um, Activision Blizzard, for the Call of Duty franchise, for Warcraft, for Diablo, for all those big games. I do know that there are still new projects in development within Blizzard. A lot of people have been theorizing that Microsoft might just double down on the franchises that are already successful. I don't believe that is going to be the case. But yeah, we don't know. Um, we are hearing, my colleague Dina Bass is hearing that a lot of the layoffs are hitting redundant departments such as marketing and other kind of um, departments that you would expect to be hit by an integration with another company that does similar sorts of business. I mean, 1,900 people is a lot, but in context, just 8% of Microsoft's gaming workers. Jason Schreier, fascinating. Thanks for giving us really the inside track on all of that. Meanwhile, let's go to another extraordinary scoop coming from Bloomberg. A group named China Tech Threat has been sounding the alarm on the threat posed by companies vulnerable to Chinese infiltration or pressure. On the top of the list, laptop maker Lenovo, for example. Here's the twist. Dell, a rival of Lenovo, is one of the main sponsors of that very group. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Brody Ford, who helped bring us to attention this particular interesting turn of events. It's not just Dell that might be sponsoring this particular company, this particular yeah. group, pressure group, shall we call them. It's funny, so middle school, I had Lenovo. I think in this building we got Lenovo. Uh, we're used to hearing about Chinese tech anxieties, but Lenovo is not a name we're used to hearing. But this group's been walking around town telling people, you got to get rid of these. You got to tear them out. You got to, you know, uh, pass these state level bans to not use Lenovo. And again, turns out it was Dell funding it, right? And they didn't disclose that. Um, and we see as increasing tensions between US and China happen, companies are increasingly willing to say, hey, could this be an opportunity for us? So this is kind of a nice case study in the way that the trade war has been advancing. A look at this very detailed Bloomberg Business Week story, fantastic reporting and writing Brody, and remind myself that Lenovo is the biggest maker of personal computers and laptops in the world. What did they have to say in response to this reporting? But I guess ultimately the question is, what is it that Dell and Micron want achieved in the end down the road? Yeah, as you said, Lenovo is the world's biggest maker of PCs. PCs, pretty concentrated market, right? You have HP, Dell, Lenovo. Any loss for Lenovo is going to be a win for HP and Dell. And the backstory here is that HP and Dell really had thriving, growing businesses in China. But over time, they've been regulated over there. Uh, the Chinese government has sent out mandates saying you're going to have to start using less of these. And so that's when Dell and also HP, but not through the front group, said that, hey, maybe we should start applying similar pressure. And for Micron, I mean, the semiconductor industry, I think, is maybe a better known example of U.S.-China tensions. And so the semiconductor companies China Tech Threat has talked about are more of these kind of ascendant players who would likely compete with Micron at some point. Hmm. We'll see if it does indeed garner any interest from China as to the actions, well, the money being fueled by these particular companies. Ready for brilliant Thank piece you. of reporting. Thanks so much. Ed, what have you got? 
Well, we're going to the world of cars and Porsche going electric. The car maker just unveiled its own electric Macan. I caught up with Timo Resch, the new president and CEO of Porsche Cars North America, in an exclusive interview just ahead of the launch. And we discussed his outlook for the company as they try to tackle the EV market here in the States. Have a listen. We are pretty sure that with the launch of the Macan electric, we will pretty much uh, not be able to cope with the demand and definitely in the first year. I think there's definitely a lot of demand. A lot of people are waiting for a product like this. And this comes at uh, a stage where the Macan, as we have it in the market right now with the combustion, elect uh, the combustion engine uh, car, has its most successful year in its history as of last year. So there's high demand for the existing platform. And I think a lot of people are looking for this new latest edge technology that does everything that the Macan already has going for it, even to a higher degree. So for that, uh, for that reason, I feel positive about it. And then we can really see in the year 2025 and upcoming what the real relationship between the ICE version and the BEV version will be. Right. In the first, the first year, I think it's just customer demand room and what we can supply from our factory in Germany. So, well, exactly so. So you're supply constrained, right, Timo? You know that demand for the electric Macan is going to outweigh your ability to supply. When you are phoning your, your counterparts in Germany, how much supply are they able to guarantee you for that first year? I can't go into details of numbers, but I think uh, we are very much driven by providing usually always just one car less than the mass market is asking for. So this is what um, our flexibility also in terms of our production pipeline, having both of these cars come out of our factory in Leipzig in Germany, that gives us this perfect possibility to custom tailor um, our supply chain to the market demands. And for that reason, I'm sure we will hit the right spot, supplying enough uh, um, Macan overall. And I assume in the first couple of months, uh, there will be more demand than we can supply for the Macan uh, BEF. Who are you worried about out there? Is it the Cybertruck? You know, it's a higher spec, expensive model in the first instance that goes to the high net worth individual or the big spender? Or are you worried about the electrified offerings from some of your, your German peers, like Mercedes, for example? I think in terms of design and appeal and technology really being cutting technology, we as Porsche can usually um, have a lot of people that start being convinced and being excited about the Porsche brand. So we, we see that there will be a lot of opportunities to get um, the Porsche family growing, but at the same time also get existing Porsches excited, for, uh, Porsche fans excited for the Macan BEV. So there's, I think, a lot of opportunity in the still growing BEV market where customers will come from and start joining the Porsche family and start this experiencing what the feeling of a Porsche, the Porsche product is all about. Timo, America was, was critically important to Porsche in 2023, in part because China's growth was decelerating. And I think Porsche has said 2024 is going to be difficult in China as well. What kind of pressure are you under to keep the growth going here in the United States, North America more broadly, when a key market like China is slowing down? Um, being responsible for the North American market, I would like to focus on these topics. But if you see the overall balance of distribution of sales of Porsche, I think the Porsche brand is perfectly balanced in terms of its international distribution of sales. So this is a really, let's say, great time to see that this uh, there is not such a huge dependency on the Chinese market as it might be for some other brands. And we see 
the brand being in a very good position, uh, I think we have high desirability. You can see that in all different kinds of products. And for that reason, I also see good possibility to continue on this growth pattern of uh, sustainable growth also here in the United States or in the North American market overall. So we will, uh, I think, driven by customer demand, continue the success story. Timo Resch, Porsche North America President, CEO Carol, on a car that's long delayed, everyone's excited about. It's good looking as well. She's pretty, I've got to say. Meanwhile, coming up, look, we're going to sit down with the CEO of Fearless Fund, Ed. As she prepares to go back to court to fight a discrimination lawsuit against the venture fund for its grant program to black female founders. Good dig into it. It's a Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Atlanta-based venture capital firm Fearless Fund and invests in businesses owned by women of colour and it's being sued over a grant programme for black women entrepreneurs by the American Alliance for Equal Rights. Now that's a group run by Edward Bloom, it's a conservative activist who challenged affirmative action in higher education and he won. Now the case is headed back to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals next Wednesday and joining us to discuss the implications this has for her VC, for equity more broadly in venture. I'm pleased to welcome Ariane Simone, the CEO of Fearless Fund. And, well, you go back to the 11th US Circuit Court of Appeals because it's your Strivers Grant contest that seems to be being focused on $20,000 grants. And just remind us, go back, why they take issue with allocation of money. We're being sued for alleged discrimination according to the 1981 section of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which is a law that was put in place for non-whites to enter into contracts. They are saying that we are discriminating according to that law. Your argument is these aren't contracts. 
these agrams. But more broadly, what sort of cooling effect do you think this has had on allocation of money to diverse founders when already, what is it, less, just over 1% of all venture money was allocated to women of color last year? I mean, even less than that. Actually, it was less than that. Only a fraction of a percent last year, 0.39% was allocated to women of color. The cooling effect that is taking place is basically the spirit of fear. People have been scared to deploy and uphold their diversity initiatives. The government has slowed down on minority grants. The 8A program even had to pause. And the cooling effect has been, has been I guess you say, very broad. It's very long-reaching, the impact that this court case is having without people even being sued. Uh, Arian, thank you for joining us on, on Bloomberg Technology. There's a pathway for the litigation potentially to go to the Supreme Court. And, and I understand that, that there are legal and cost considerations for, for you and the firm if that happens. But given the sort of the, the ultimate goals of Fearless Fund, trying to support and, and give capital, access to capital to, to women of color, how do you view the opportunity to go to the Supreme Court on the fundamental issue that's being discussed here? Ooh, Ed, well, I view, I'm glad you're stating it as an opportunity. It will be an opportunity to bring more awareness to these disparities. It is unfortunate that anybody would have to go to the Supreme Court to defend themselves for the right to basically target a, dis a disparity that we're targeting. Um, but I'm glad you definitely stated it as an opportunity. I think it's an opportunity for people to realize we need more legislation that protects our access to capital. At any point, have you been asked to play or understand the devil's advocate side of the equation? That you allocating money to only women of color is in some way, well, discriminatory against the women of, who aren't of color who would love to come to you for some money? Caroline, I will say it here and I've said it before. I actually desire the same thing as Ed Bloom, a world where race does not matter. We have just yet to get there. I'm interested in the yet to get their part and ultimately how much you need, not just you, your voice and those that are supporting you, but what about corporate America more broadly? Your fund has been backed and in, in fact got follow-on funding just in June from Bank of America, Costco, MasterCard. Mm -hmm. Are they speaking out for you as much as you'd like to see? I would like to see more. I would like to see a lot more corporate support. Clearly, if you believe in this vision and you've invested your capital into what we do, your, your dollars have spoken, but we do need your voice. So we would love for the CEOs of the corporations that have invested in us to take a stand publicly, correct? Have they in any way signaled they wouldn't be willing to commit capital in the future? They haven't signaled that they'd willing, they, they wouldn't be willing to commit capital in the future, but right now we are in basically the hot spot. Everybody can see us, and we do need their voice in addition to the capital. And go back to actually what it is you're funding here. The people yes. that are building businesses, what problems are they solving? What innovations are you seeing? What entrepreneurs are making and turning your head? Oh my gosh, our entrepreneurs are amazing. They're on the cover of Inc. They're on the Inc. list. They're on the Forbes list. They're on everywhere. We invest in technology as well as we invest in CPG. The problems they're solving, the disparities they are meeting, the food deserts they're going into are far long reaching. 
thing. You're talking about women of color. Their social impact is embedded in the fabric of their business and who they are. So from fintech, from any type of ag tech to, oh my gosh, the list goes on and on, to so many products that are solving amazing problems. It's like picking a favorite child if I were to highlight one. But we have about 10 girls right now that we've invested in. They're all in heavy eight-figure revenue, and they are growing by leaps and bounds. But access to capital still remains, in theory, far more tight and slim than it is yes. for other types of founders. Aaron Simone, thank you for coming on and spending time with us while in New York. Phyllis Fund CEO as she heads back to Atlanta. Okay, she and backers are trying to sell shares that place the value of the online fashion company as low as 45 billion. This as she confronts mounting competition and regulatory scrutiny ahead of a much-awaited debut in the United States. Bloomberg's Crystal Z joins us with more. This is interesting. Go back to May, a primary round where they're valued at 66 billion. Usually ahead of an IPO, you try and get in because you're excited. But what we're hearing is that private market deals are valuing the company lower. That's right. Our colleagues in Hong Kong is reporting that uh, the private valuation, some of these are minority trades, are valuing the company as, as low as 45, 60 bill, 45 billion. At, at a at a point, they were valued at 100 billion. So it's a significant decrease. And I think part of it is probably to do with that the IPO prospect is looking a little bit more dim than it used to. Um, we have seen uh, reports that the company is now subject to regulatory scrutiny, not only in China, but also in the US. So that could make uh, investor a little bit more jittery about the prospect of this company's public life. They were going to target up to $90 billion in that IPO. So the fact that they're seeing it half of that in secondary market, albeit before the turn of this year. More broadly, put it in the context of a company that's trying to distance itself from China, but still manufactures in China, its headquarters being in Singapore. But we're very worried about the Chinese economy right now. Is that in any way filtering through? More broadly, tech stocks have been under pressure. So they do actually do not sell in China. They do not generate revenue, per se, in China. They do manufacture there. They also generate use. They also uh, gather user data um, from the internet. And that is why the Chinese regulators are now looking at this company. And by looking at uh, economy just globally, you do see some uh, softness in the U.S. And the majority of the revenue do, uh, they've do focus in the U.S. market quite a bit, selling, you know, crop top, $5 crop top to teenager. And, and that's the kind of spending that would soften in a market where, um, you know, uh, inflation could go up and economic prospect is not so, uh, not so bright anymore. Crystal C, thank you for breaking it down for us. It is a very popularly read story across the internet at the moment. We thank you for it. Meanwhile, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.